Great. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Uh, really excited to have everyone back for uh, the next class in our series, Imagining King David in the Babylonian Talmud with Rabbi David Silber. Uh, Rabbi Silber is the, the dean and founder of Drisha. Uh, he has been teaching for many years with this institution and, and you know, with, with Tanakh, with Gemara, with all sorts of things. So we're really thrilled to, to be learning here this evening. Uh, last week in the series, we worked a bit in Masechah Sanhedrin. We uh, looked at some sugyas with Yoav, and we are going to be picking up with that material uh, this evening. And without further ado, I am going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Um, this was supposed to be the last class, but I didn't feel that we've ended, could end the class tonight because there's so much more material. So we're gonna to add two additional classes next two Tuesday nights. And the Tuesday night after that, which is the 15th of December, we have a special lecture. It's the Renee and Alexander Bohm Memorial Lecture. And this year, Professor Jonathan Sarner Brandeis, who's a big expert on American history, will be talking about a, an issue in American history that is relevant to the times we've been living through over the last few weeks and should prove very interesting. We'll have a Jewish bent to it as well. So that's the plan. Okay, so last week we looked at Gemara at the end of the sixth parak of Sanhedrin, which I thought was fascinating. And that's the, it's that the Gemara deals with the story of Yoav, who is uh, assassinated essentially by Shlomo's henchman, Benayel ben Yehoyada, at the uh, request of his father, David. David's dying request is that Yoav be killed. Yoav is a very important person in the book of Shmuel. He also figures prominently in Divrei Hayamim. They paint a different picture of Yoav. The picture of Yoav in Shmuel is very complicated and very interesting. In any event, the way the Gemara tells the story, uh, Yoav is killed presumably. The real reason Yoav is being killed presumably is he supported the, the wrong candidate. Uh, he was the supporter of Adonia to succeed David and Shlomo becomes the successor and Adonia gets killed. And the main supporters of Adonia, uh, Yoav being one of them is also killed. So the way the Gemara tells the story Yoav runs off to the temple, holds on to the, to the altar, sanctuary, and Benayal doesn't know what to do. So he goes back to Shlomo, and uh, they sort of bring Yoav up on charges that he has murdered two, two people in the past. One of them in the ancient past, Avner. The other one is Amasa. These are two generals. Yoav himself being the commander-in-chief of David's army. And he killed Avner. So they, why did you kill Avner? If you recall, he answers, well, Avner killed my brother. So he's, a, I killed So So they, they said, what do you mean he killed your brother? Your brother was running off to kill Avner. He's a Rodef. So Avner had every right to kill him. And Yoav's uh, answer is, um, he could have, uh, he didn't have to kill him. He could have just wounded him. He was an expert marksman. He could have he could have wounded him. 
He was He could have used minimum force to kill him. And therefore he wasn't entitled to kill him. And therefore I had the right as the avenger of the blood, as the Kawal Hadam, to avenge the death of my brother. And that's part of the sugi. Then it goes on and goes on. I'm not going over the whole sugi again. But that is an interesting principle, actually, very interesting principle. We could call the doctrine of, of minimum force. So if you could have killed, prevented someone from committing a murder, for example, by using minimum force and you didn't use minimum force, that's considered an act of murder. And, and in this case, Yoah feels he could avenge the death of his brother. So of course, what the Gemara does and often does when it comes to David and David's court, whether it's Avner, whether it's Shimi, whether it's David, whether it's Doeg, whether it's Achitofa, whether it's Yoav, doesn't matter. They have all these halachic discussions in the Gemara. They rabbinize David and David's court. Okay, we'll come back to that again. But this principle of nitan comes up again. I did want to respond at this point and mention something that Devora Steinmetz, my wife, uh, mentioned to me last week. And it's in response to Sandra Rappaport's question, actually. And Sandra's question was, what is the Gemara actually about? What's, what's going on in that text at the end of the sixth chapter of Sanhedrin? I spoke about that. I talked about... Um, the Gemara at the end, the Agalata, is, in a sense, countering the claim that's made in the beginning of the chapter, that the judges make a decision, and their decision is a pure technical, theoretical decision, without relevance to the consequences of what they decide. And that's the whole sugya in the beginning of the sixth parak, that the place of execution, for example, is distant from the place where the judges uh, sit and and discuss and determine what the law is. But the end of the chapter talks about, uh, begins with the idea that if the king, if someone is executed because they rebelled against the king, the king is permitted to keep their property, which certainly raises the question about the judgment of the king because there's a benefit to the king. So when I, in this context, uh, I was talking to Devorah about this and she made another point, which I think is a very important point. It's not actually related so much to what we discussed last week, but it's related to something that comes up earlier in the, in the, in the sixth chapter, which is connected. And in that sixth chapter, which talks about execution, among other things, it tells us that before the person is to be executed, the person confesses. Vidui, there's a confession before death, before execution. The Mishnah and the Gemara raise the question, what about if the person doesn't want to confess? Because the person says, I'm not guilty. I know the witnesses testified against me. I know that's the rule and all that. But let me tell you a little secret. I didn't do it. And I'm not confessing for a crime I didn't do. I refuse to confess. He wants to say, Oh God, I confess all of my sins except this one. So there's a dispute in the Mishnah. Point to one title, that's okay. But the other position in the Mishnah, the mainstream position is no. He shouldn't be allowed to say that because if he does this, 
it will cast aspersions upon the court. He should say, forgive, forgive my sins generally. But he can't say, shouldn't say, we don't allow him to say, not shall we stop him. But he shouldn't say, except for this one. And that actually implied in the Mishnah and made clear in the Gemara is something else, which is that this person is not allowed to tell the truth. And that essentially, the way you uphold the system, and this is what the Gemara is getting at, the paradox, that sometimes the only way to uphold the system is by acting in a manner that is inconsistent with the deepest values of the very system you're trying to uphold. And I believe that uh, idea is actually even at the end of the chapter that we did read, when the Gemara talks about Yoav, it, it quotes the verse that David did Mishpat and Tzedakah, the Yoav al-Atzava. David was doing justice and Yoav was on the army, in charge of the army. And the Gemara makes the comment, what enabled David to do justice? The fact that Yoav was on the army. So I think there's a very profound point in the end of the chapter. And the Agadita, in a sense, is countering the legal sections in the beginning of the chapter. And we should remember, because people say a lot of nonsense about this, but here's something very important to remember, that the same people that wrote the beginning of the chapter, they're the same people who wrote the end of the chapter. So it's the Gemara itself, actually, is raising these questions, which are serious questions about due process, about law, about the very things that society rests on and raising questions about it. It's much more complicated than we might imagine. And because it's much more complicated than we might imagine, I would say it's much more fragile than we might imagine. So we have to be very, very careful about endangering the system because the system is much more fragile than we typically uh, consider. In any event, that's what that's part of what we did last week. But what came up in the sugya was this idea that of nitan ratzilo me'achat me'evara. So I thought this is a good segue to a Gemara also in Sanhedrin. And Michael will share this with everybody. It's on daf ayin dawet omel And it starts with the word abai, abai omar, b'yachol lahatzil b'echol me'evara. So the, the context which is, I just mentioned the context, the Sephariah tells us what the context is. The context is this. Um, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, just, be, just beforehand, has a very interesting and important halacha. And that is, there are situations where if you see somebody who's about to commit a crime, you are permitted to stop that person from committing the crime, even if it means taking the life of that person. And the Mishnah enumerates cases where this is permissible, and the Mishnah enumerates cases where this is not permissible. So one of the cases which is permissible is if you see a person who is trying to rape a, a woman, um, then you are permitted, you have to stop that person. So what the Torah says it essentially, you are, not just permitted, but obligated to stop the person from committing that crime against, uh, against the woman. And uh, even if it means taking his life. 
So the context of the Gemara, the Gemara raised the question about this because the Mishnah says elsewhere that there are certain conditions that if a person uh, commits a crime, uh, he, um, if a person commits a crime, uh, certain sexual crimes, there's, there's a fine that you pay. And we, the Gemara has a principle that if somebody is, can be put to death, either put to death by the court or even put to death or even is liable to be killed in a case like this, where somebody could prevent the crime from taking place, then that person doesn't have a monetary payment in addition. So the Gemara raises the question, how could it be that one of the cases of knas, of paying a fine or a penalty, is when someone is chasing after a woman to rape her. But we just learned that a bystander is permitted to, to prevent this person, even if it means to kill him. So the person could have been killed. So why then should the person have to pay the fine? That's the technical question, and the Gemara has a whole range of answers. But I wanted to start with this answer, which is relevant to our topic. Abai Omar, Abai says, no, he's talking about a case where the person would not be killed, where the person could have been prevented from committing the crime by simply being wounded in one of his limbs. If, in fact, the only way to stop him was to kill him, then he wouldn't pay the fine. Because since he's liable to death, there's no monetary payment. It's called Kamwe Bidurabha Mine. But the case is talking about where you could have prevented it by injuring him, by wounding him, not necessarily killing him. And Abai says, and this is the view of Rabbi Yonatan ben Shaolhi, the tiny Rabbi Yonatan ben Shaol Omer, Rodev Shayo Rodev Achachaveu Hargol, he quotes a so a Rabbi Yonatan ben Shol. Now Yonatan ben Shol does not appear in the entire Talmud Bible except here, to the best of my knowledge. And what a name, Jonathan the son of Saul. Now you should know, by the way, that sometimes, and a lot's been written about this, sometimes the names that appear in the Gemara are actually made up names. There's a whole literature about this. Most of them are not so. There probably is an Abai, and there is a Rava, and there's a Rabbi Akiva, et cetera, et cetera. But the name Yonatan ben Shaul is a very striking name. And he appears with this halacha. If you can prevent a crime by wounding persons trying to commit murder, if you could stop the potential murderer by wounding him, and you don't, and you kill him, then you are liable, then you are put to death. So that's the case over here, says Abai. And uh, let's move down a little bit more. Um, so we don't really need this for our, for our purposes. Mer says, what is the thinking of Yonatan ben Shaul? What is the source of Yonatan ben Shaul? What we're learning in Sanhedrin, we will go into this. It's very actually a very important principle and a very interesting principle. But I'm interested in something else here. This principle has come up in the story of Yoah in the debate between Shlomo, the judge, and Yoav, who's being judged. And what do you know in Sanhedrin, on Ayin Dawan 74a, we have the same principle espoused, and this time by Jonathan, the son of Saul. So I had the following thought about this principle. And that is, 
we're studying these Agadot to get a picture of David. And, but at the same time, these Agadot are not simply stories. They are to a certain extent, I think, if not interpretations, but they're playing off the text. And I was thinking about this idea that if you can prevent a crime by wounding somebody, as opposed to killing somebody, you're obligated to do so. And my thinking is that that mentality, that approach to life actually is the approach that we encounter in the book of Shmuel in terms of David. That actually is David's approach. David is somebody who, of course, we know is perfectly capable of, of, uh, of killing. He's a great warrior. And I would add, against his enemies, a rather ruthless warrior. But he prefers not to kill you. And I'll give you three examples of this in the book of Shmuel. One of which is the story that began our little journey together, story of Bathsheba. So we know the story, and we'll come back to the story in a few minutes in the next text we'll look at. But David stays home from the war in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David and Bathsheba. And he goes to the roof and he sees this beautiful woman and he summons the woman, sleeps with her. And she sends, sends her back home, but she sends him a message that she's pregnant. That's a complication for David. We'll get to this later tonight as well. So what does David do? David sends a message to the general, to Yoav. He sends a message to Yoav, send me Uriah the Chiti, Uriah the Hittite, send him to me. And when Uriah the Hittite, who's the husband of Bathsheba, comes from the battlefield, David asks him questions about the war. How's the war? How are the soldiers? How is Yoav? There's no record in the story in that chapter what Uriah says. So David doesn't actually care what Uriah says. But after his report, David says to Uriah, why don't you go home? Go home to your wife. Go back to your house, he says. But Uriah refuses to go home. How could I go to my wife to eat and, and drink and sleep with my wife? And the fellow soldiers are in the field and the ark is in the field. I would never, I swear I would never do such a thing. So Uriah refuses to go home. The next day, David says, stay another day, I'll send you home. I'll send you back to the front, to the war. And David gets him drunk and he tries to send him home. But Uriah sleeps by the gate of the palace. He refuses to go home. And then David summons Uriah and says, take this message to Yoav. It's a sealed message. And essentially the message has two words. It has more than two words, but I'll summarize it. Kill me. So Uriah bears a message which talks about his execution on the battlefield under the guise of war. And my point over here, I will come back to the story again because the David Bathsheba story is what started us off on this whole study. But here's the point about David. David prefers not to kill Uriah. He has no interest in killing Uriah. He, he can solve his problem without killing him. He can send him home to his wife. And if eight months later, she'll have a baby and nobody will know who the father is. And David will solve his problem. Everybody will assume it's Uriah's child. That removes the stigma from David. It also removes the problem of the potential heir to the throne having another lineage, which is a very important issue in the story. But that's David. 
So David does have Uriah killed, terrible story, but that wasn't his preference. He prefers to avoid the problem in a different way. We would say in the language of the Gemara, and I am reminded in the book of Shmuel of another story about David. And that is that in the book of Shmuel, there are two parallel stories that appear two chapters apart. And that is in 1 Samuel, chapter 24 and chapter 26. They're very similar stories. And they are 24 and 26. Chapter 25 is a story we have encountered a bit and we're gonna encounter it in one of the next two weeks in some depth because it actually addresses some of the questions that have been raised. Chapter 25 is the story of Abigail, Naval and Abigail. And there's a long Gemara in Megillah about that story, very interesting. But 24 and 26 are parallel stories. In chapter 24, David is running away from Saul and Saul chases after David with his army and Saul enters a cave. And David is in the cave. Saul doesn't know that. And David's men say to David, here's your opportunity to kill Saul. You can get rid of Saul now. He's coming to effort to kill you. And David sneaks up behind Saul. But instead of killing him, he tears his coat. And then Saul leaves the cave. And David calls out to Saul and says, look, I could have killed you. And here's evidence. I have your torn coat in my hands. That's chapter 24, and Saul says, Saul cries, you're a better man than I am, etc." Chapter 26 is a very similar story. It's a parallel story with some interesting differences, but in 26, Saul is chasing after David once again, and this time David knows where Saul is, and he takes with him, he goes down to the camp of Saul, and he takes with him Abishai. Abishai is Yoav's brother, who's a pretty bloodthirsty, a great warrior, and is sort of a hothead. And Saul is sound asleep, and all the people around him are sleeping. And there's a jug of water near Saul, and a sword, a spear. And David goes into the camp, and David takes the, the spear and the water, and he walks out of the camp, they're all sound asleep. And again, he cries to Saul from a distance. He cries actually to Avner. He says, Avner, you're not protecting the king. I could have easily killed him. Before this happens, Avishai says to David in chapter 26, here's your opportunity. Here's the man that's trying to kill you. You can go in there, let, let me go, he says, and I will eliminate your enemy. I'll go in, I'll eliminate your enemy. And David says, don't do it. He's the anointed of God, don't do it. And then David says, his day will come. Maybe he gets sick and dies. Maybe he dies in battle. Maybe he dies some other way, but I'm not gonna kill him. I'm not gonna kill him. So that's an interesting, those are two very interesting stories. And the second one is actually explicit. David says, don't do it. Not that David bemoans the death of Saul, quite the opposite. He begins to think about possible ways that Saul might die, but I'm not gonna kill him. Someone else will take care of it. God will take care of it. The enemy will take care of it. 
we can accomplish our ends without violence. And that is something that is very David-like. Now, he tries with Uriah to accomplish his ends without violence. Uriah doesn't go along with it. Noble Uriah, and he pays the price because having tried to accomplish the end without violence, there's no other way to solve your problem. So therefore, David has him killed. He sends the letter to Yoav. But my point about this Nitan which appears both in the Yoav story, was when Shlomo was making the indictment of Yoav, and, and Yoav responds, what are you talking about? He, he didn't have to kill him. And over here, with Abaye and citing Yonatan ben Shol, Jonathan, the son of Saul, who of course is David's, one might say David's kindred spirit or the positive side of David, the noble Jonathan, so it's not just a statement uh, in the halachic contest, but for our purposes, it can be read as a kind of interpretive statement. They're saying something about David, even in the Bathsheba story. It is true. It's adultery, it's murder, etc. Terrible story. But we should remember, not that this justifies, I'm not suggesting anything like that, but it's, an, it's a nuance. He didn't actually, he doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to kill Uriah. Now, at the end of the day, for Oya, it doesn't make that much difference because, in fact, he does kill Oya. But this is something to think about the way these Agadot relate in a kind of interpretive manner to the stories that they play on. So I just wanted to add that to what we said last week. If anybody has a comment or question before we get to the main Gemara uh, for tonight, so please just speak up. Now's the chance to talk up. Comment, question. Rabbi? Yep. Um, hi, it's Sandra. I yes. have a question. If in fact um, we're, we're expected from this um, uh, small piece about with uh, Yonatan, the son of Saul, yes. to see this nuanced uh, strike to David in the Bathsheba story, for instance, one of the three times he in fact backs away from killing right. or, choose, or would prefer to back away from killing. So since the Gemara, as you have said, in these last few weeks, again and again, since the Gemara has no great sympathy for David, and in fact, we'll paint him in the same colors that he is painted in, in the books, book of Samuel, can we, can we then infer from the fact that this is a nuanced way of looking at David that places him in a positive light, not justifying what he does, but, but asking us to see him painted in a slightly lighter shade? Can we assume that, that that has a very powerful valence? Because if the Gemara would normally be negative to David, if the Gemara is also presenting this nuanced side to, to the quote-unquote murder of Uriah, right, then, so we my, it, then we have to take it, take it even more seriously? You know, here's what I would say about this, and here's the, the point. There, there are many Davids in the Bible. There's a David of Chronicles, who's a saint, there's the David of Psalms. It's not a narrative so much, but David is a powerful spokesperson, a powerful, prayerful person. And then there's the David of Samuel. And my point, my larger point, which we'll get to, I wanted to add these two weeks exactly for this reason. I don't believe that the book of Samuel presents only one picture of David. The book of Samuel presents two sides to David. There's a side to David, which is 
which is wonderful, which is one is perfect, self-sacrificing, just, honest. There's that David that appears in Samuel and very importantly in Samuel. And at the same time, there's that other David in the story of Bathsheba and the story of Abigail and the story of Mephibosheth in the story of Novo, the story of the marriage to the two daughters of Saul. There's the, that other David, David at the end of his life. And what's interesting is, because I think the David of Samuel, what makes it a great book in my view is the complexity of David in the book. There's something about David that is ideal. And the book ends on a, night, a very ideal note. That's how the book ends with David saying, Spirit, let the people should live and I should die. I'm their servant. I'm your servant, God. I don't tell you what to do. You tell me what to do. So running through the book of Samuel, there is that other David. And my point about the Gemara is that actually the Bavli, which is primarily playing off the David of Samuel, that the Bavli's picture of David perfectly parallels the book of Samuel's picture of David. And we'll see that actually uh, probably more in the next two weeks. In one of the weeks, I'm going to, one of the two Gemara we haven't done in Psachim, in my view, is suggesting a completely different picture of David, which is true. And I did want to talk about both the Bavli and the book of Shmuel and how they represent David. So the, the, the point you're making about the nuance, yes, certainly it's there. There are many positive statements about David in, in the Bavli. And I don't think the Bavli is out there to give David a pass. Of course not. We see the Bavli is sometimes heaps on and, and makes all kinds of interesting and additional points about David. But the big picture, I think, is that the Bavli, like the Book of Shmuel, has a very complex picture of David. And I, I will make a suggestion as to what that's about, at least in the Book of Shmuel. And perhaps the Bavli has a different agenda in that respect. But Thank we'll you. Get there. Anybody else? I was, I was gonna ask Rabbi, just the opposite of what Sandra was asking, that when you see Uriah, who's called back from war, and how he's trying to be a mensch and either go back or not take a vacation or whatever, and David's trying even harder to get him to, to have relations with his wife, it makes Uriah look like this really great person. It looks David look even worse because he's trying to cover up, you know, uh, the sin that he did. I think that's true. In my view against, there's a very famous piece by Mayor Sternberg that many people presume to be correct. I don't. But I, I, my point about Uriah Hachiti, his name is Uriah, which means the light of God. And David is accused by the prophet of acting Baseta, which is in stealth. And that Uriah functions in the story as David's foil. The story is not about Uriah per se. The story is about David. Story takes place at twilight. We we will we, we're going to see that in just a few minutes. So that Uriah is there. Yes, I would say to cast a shade upon David, to cast a negative light upon David. Uriah being the noble, innocent, and valorous warrior, and David is the general who doesn't go to war, and who acts in stealth and secrecy and cover up. And sure, I think that's the point. One of the points of the story is it's a one of the great stories of the Bible, the way the Book of Shmuel tells it. But without further ado, let's move to the next uh, text, which is the Gemara in Brachot. And this is a very interesting Gemara. The context is the following. Um, the Gemara, the, the Mishnah in 
the first Mishnah in Brachot, first Mishnah, period, in the Shas, talks about the appropriate time to say the Shema. So there's the Shema is recited twice. It's recited at night. It's recited in the morning. And the Gemara in the Mishnah, actually, talks about how much time does one have to say the Shema. Now, in those days, people got up at dawn. They didn't wake up at uh, 8.30 in the morning. They got up at 4.30 in the morning or whatever. And uh, there's an opinion that you can always say Shema un un until sunrise. After sunrise, it's too late when you wake up. But we follow a different opinion. The first quarter of the day, three hours, which means a quarter of the day, because that's when kings wake up. Kings get up late. Kings sleep in. Kings live a life of luxury and leisure. So the Gemara in that context, in the beginning of Brachot, talks about King David. And it's the different opinions when David would get up. One opinion is he would wake up every night in the middle of the night. He would spend his night either studying Torah or composing songs or singing. The, the, the wind would come and it would blow on the harp. It would make a sound and David would get up and compose his poems, his praises of God, etc. So the Gemara now, going back to that, very beginning of Tractate Brachot, Gemara says, David get up at midnight? What are you talking about? He got up, he got up, he, he was already up when the, when the night began. And they quite a, quote a verse. I rose with Neshef. You see the translation on the side. I hope for your word. And Neshef means the evening. As it says, So David rose when it was still evening before night. So let's scroll down. So the Lord says, listen, it doesn't mean he got up at midnight. It means I was always up at midnight. Fine. Then the Gemara continues, Rabbi Zera says what David would do. This is David. David would doze until midnight like a horse. Horse doesn't sleep deeply apparently. And after that, he would get up with the strength of a lion. Until midnight, he was studying Torah. And from midnight till dawn, he would sing songs of praise. Fine. Then the Gemara goes on, we can skip that. Keep going, keep going, keep going. One second, one second, one second, fine. Keep going some more. Um, how did David know when midnight was? So I've mentioned that before. The wind would come and play on his harp and he would rise up. We can keep going down. Fine. Well, oh, actually go, go back, back up a little bit. Back up a little bit, stop. Okay. But now let's read this. So David, David knew when it was midnight. How did David know when it was midnight? That's the question. So he would know it was midnight. There was a harp or a wire hung over David's bed. And once midnight arrived, I'm reading the English, the northern midnight wind would come and cause the lyre to play on its own. David would rise from bed, study Torah till the first rays of dawn. When dawn came, the sages of Israel entered to advise him concerns of the nation. They said, oh master, the nation requires sustenance. People need food, what should we do? The king said, go and sustain one another. Each one should help the other with food. The sages responded to him, 
A handful of food does not satisfy a lion. A pit will not be filled from the rain that falls into the mouth. Other water must be piped in. In other words, the, we don't, the nation doesn't have enough resources. We got a problem. So King David said to them, go ahead and take up arms with the troops. Go out and fight a war, he says, in battle, in order to expand our borders and provide our people with the opportunity to earn a livelihood. Go, go and fight a war, he says. Miyad, immediately, Yoatzim Bachi Tovel, they would seek advice from Achi Tovel, Achi Tovel being David's chief advisor, chief counselor, Vinimuachim Bissan Hedrin, and they would go to the high court, Visholim Buurim Bitumim, and they would inquire of the Urim Bitumim that were worn the breastplate of the, of the high priest. Fine. And Amr of Yosef, what is the source? as it says, this is in Chronicles, This is a verse in Chronicles. And now he explains, this is the advisor. And he quotes a verse, the advice of Achitofel in those days were like the word of God. Keep going down. Now we're in Daftawid. He's a Sanhedrin. He's the one that kills all the people for Shlomo. In the Gemara in Brachot, he's a Sanhedrin. Evyatar is the priest. And then it goes on, keep going down. Keep going down. I see, here we are. And now the Gemara, as it says in the Safaria translation, further explores David's character. And they quote of a, a Psalm, Psalm 86. Psalm says, David, a Psalm of David. Shamran nafshi ki chasid anu. O God, protect me, for I am a chasid. I am a pious person. Levi v'rab Yitzchak. Chad Omar. One of them said, Kach Omar David l'fnei HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What do you mean? David turns to God and says, I'm pious, I'm righteous. What did David mean? Ribona shalom. Ko chasid anu? Am I not pious? For the kings of the east and the west, they all sleep for the first quarter of the day. That's the Mishnah, the first Mishnah in Brachot. So David's, according to one, David said to God, look how righteous I am. I'm up at midnight with my harp, either composing praises to you, according to some studying Torah. See how different I am from all the kings. They get up late. They get up at three hours, but I get up at midnight. So that's the, go ahead, keep, yeah, we scroll down some more. But the other one says, no, David had something else in mind. Am I not righteous? Am I not pious? They, all the kings, they sit in groups befitting their honored status. Vani, but as far as I'm concerned, I concerned, Yodai Muchlachos Bedam Ubishafir Ubishoya, Kadei Retire Isha Ravala. I'm different. The other ones sit in their high chairs and their fancy chairs and all this stuff. But look at me. My hands are sold with blood, the blood of women who come to me with questions whether they're menstruants or not determine whether or not it is blood of impurity 
and she is forbidden to her husband, right? I, I, I work at a fetus that miscarried. Is it considered a birth as a placenta? Because I'm concerned in order to render a woman ritually pure and consequently scroll down, scroll down a little more to render pure and permitted to her husband. Fine. Now, before we get to the third uh, point, uh, before, and then David adds more. But just let's reflect upon this, this statement so far. They quote a psalm, a psalm, a psalm of David, and David said, protect me, O Lord, for I am a chassid, I'm a righteous person. And each one of these two Amoraim has a suggestion. What was David saying to God? The first one is, Look at the other kings. They're getting up, they're sleeping in. They're getting up late. Quarter of the day, they're still in bed. I'm up at midnight. And the second one says, no, that wasn't David's point. David's point was the other kings are fancy kings, but I'm trying to help the people. In what sense? I'm sitting there examining the blood of the women to figure out if it's considered damnida and they're forbidden to their husbands, uh, I look at a, a, a placenta. Um, is this a birth? Is it not a birth? Because I want to make sure that the woman is permit, permitted to sleep with her husband. Those are the first two opinions. We'll get to the third point in a moment. But the point over here is an article by a guy named Jim, Jim Diamond, a long article about David and the Bible that I came across. There's two parts. The second part, I think, is completely wrong. But the first part, he makes several interesting points, and I wanted to mention what he says, and I wanted to present it a little bit differently or to raise the possibility of a different understanding. But what, the point he makes about this is obviously the case. If we think about the story that generated our whole study, David and Bathsheba, what is the story of David? How does the story of David and Bathsheba happen? It's a story where David ends up causing the death, murdering Uriahiti, adultery and murder. How did it start? So chapter even 11, on the roof. yes, even before the roof. Chapter 11 says that David, chapter 11 is a continuation of chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a war against Ammon, which is David's fault, by the way. But that's, let's just take that for now on faith. It's David's fault. It's a war that never should have happened. David is responsible for this war, 100% responsible for it. The war picks up again at the turn of the year. And David sends all the men, all the soldiers, all the valiant men to the battlefield. But David remained in Jerusalem. The storyteller doesn't tell us why David remained in Jerusalem. We're left to wonder why he himself didn't go to battle, but he doesn't go. He stays home. And then the next verse, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, by Heli 8 Erev, it took place at twilight. David arose from his bed. And he stand, gets up at twilight from his bed and he walks on the roof. And from the roof, he sees a woman bathing. We discussed that story. Why was she bathing? What does it say in the text? She was purifying herself or sanctifying herself 
from her impurity. It sounds like a mikvah. Maybe her husband will come home. In fact, her husband does come home, not to her, but he's summoned from the battlefield. So the first part of the story is about a king. He's not taking a siesta. They translate sometimes as a siesta. It is not a siesta. Because a siesta is taken at one o'clock in the afternoon. In many countries where it's very hot, people sleep in the early afternoon. But they don't take a siesta till twilight. That's not a siesta. He's sleeping during the day. Forget about waking up three hours into the day. This guy's waking up at the 11th hour. Actually, maybe the 18th hour. Fact is, he sleeps in the daytime. He gets up at twilight. And that's when you get in big trouble. People that sleep in the day and are up at night, that's trouble. So here we have the Gemara says, God, look how righteous I am. All the other kings, they're waking up at nine o'clock in the morning, three hours. I'm up at midnight. But when you look, read the story here, the reader could recall the story of David who doesn't get up at nine in the morning, but gets up at six at night, goes onto the roof. And what does he see from the roof? He sees a woman bathing, presumably, in case the husband would return from the battlefield, the noble Uriah. And of course, in that story, David sees her, and we discussed the Gemara in the Sanhedrin, but at the end of the day, he summons her and he sleeps with her. He And David actually interposes himself, one might say, between himself and between this woman's husband. So that, so the story over here, in the beginning of Brachot, the reader of it, presumably, when you read the story about how David gets up so early, and then he's busy, he's busy, busy, busy making sure that these women can, are permitted to their husbands, and their husbands are permitted to them. But we remember the story of David and Bathsheba. Yes, mitkadeshet mitumata. But David's not worried about the husband being permitted to her. I'm not sure he's worried about anybody being permitted, but he grabs this woman. And then the Gemara in Brachot continues. Let's read a little more. Let's scroll down some more. And David said, actually, stop, sorry, scroll back up a second. Back up a second, because I didn't, right? And a little more up, 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 up. Yeah, we go old. He says, and not only that, El kol ma'ashani oseh, and David says, not only that, when I have a question about this case, this blood, and I'm not sure, I inquire of my Rebbe. David in the Bible has many Rebbe's. This one is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Did I come to the correct rule? Did I find the person guilty, is that right? Or, or innocent? Yofetiharti? When I said it was pure, is that correct, Rebbe Mephibosheth? Yofetimeti? I wasn't ashamed to ask the Bloboshti. I was not embarrassed to ask my Rebbe. Now here we have Mephibosheth. Now what do we know about Mephibosheth? So Mephibosheth actually is the subject of a Gemara that appears in a couple of places. One is in Shabbat, but we didn't get into that Gemara there, the very first Gemara we saw. Mephibosheth is Saul's son, Saul's only son. He is lame. He's, 
he has an accident shortly after birth. He can't walk. And David, after the house of Saul has been essentially annihilated, David uh, asked the question, is anybody still alive in the house of Saul? And he's told that the Mephibosheth is still around, Jonathan's son. David swears to Jonathan to protect the family. So David summons Mephibosheth. He says, Mephibosheth, you eat at my table. I restore, I restore the family property to you. Everybody there works for you and you stay with me and I'll protect you. Fine. Then when David is exiled and Avshalom rebels against David and exiles David, um, so Mephibosheth doesn't go with David. The reason Mephibosheth doesn't go, we know, is because he can't walk and his servant, who is very powerful himself, double crosses him and takes all the horses so Mephibosheth can't go with David. When David returns, finally, after the story of Avshalom, Mephibosheth is waiting to greet him and David says, why didn't you go with me? Earlier, by the way, in, in the whole fabulous story, David doesn't seem to care if anybody goes with him. Why didn't you go with me? And now prior to David say, prior to David meeting Mephibosheth, he meets up with the servant, Siva. Where's, where's, where's Mephibosheth? Oh, Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem when Avshalom came. He said to himself, maybe they'll make me king, which is an absurd idea. Absurd on many levels. Oh, really? The field I gave to Mephibosheth, I give to you. So he takes away the field. Then when, David, when Mephibosheth is waiting for David, David's returning to Jerusalem, and David says, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? He says, listen, I, I, I didn't go with you because I had no way to get to you because my servant uh, said, wait, I'll saddle the horses, and he left. But you know, he says, you do whatever you want. I'm just glad to see you back safely. And he's, he's been in mourning for David. David says, stop talking so much. I've decided. You and Siva split the field. And Mephibosheth says, he can keep the field. I'm just happy you're home. That story, actually, in the Bavli, if we have a chance, maybe if we have a chance, to, the Bavli sees that story as a terrible story about David, which it is. And the Bavli says that when David said, you and Siva split the field, a voice came down from heaven and said, you, your descendants, and your Ravam ben Nevat, you split the kingship. The Babli sees in the Mephibosheth story a terrible crime committed by David, maybe even worse than Bathsheba, because it's a perversion of justice. Mm -hmm. In two senses, it's a perversion of justice because he makes his decision to take the field away before, me, before he meets Mephibosheth. And it's a perversion of justice because after the fact, it's obvious Mephibosheth is telling the truth. So what do you mean split the field? What kind of compromise? There's no compromise here in place. There's a right and a wrong. And David's supposed to be a judge. So that's the story of Mephibosheth. In this Agatha, though, David says, look, 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 how, look what a righteous person I am. I'm so busy examining the, this, 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 this blood. And whenever I have a question, I go to my Rebbe Mephibosheth. Did I do the right thing, Mephibosheth? He goes to Mephibosheth for judgment. But of course, in the story in the book of Shmuel, Mephibosheth is the victim of David's false judgment. 
So now the question is, we have this Agatha that appears right in the beginning of Tractate Brachot, which one might say right in the beginning of the Talmud Bavli. And now the question is, what to make of this Agatha? What is the point of the Agatha? That's the question. I want everybody to think about that for a minute. What is the point of this Agatha? And I will mention to you what this uh, Dr. James Diamond says. He said this many years ago, I just happened to notice it. Uh, what he suggests, and I have a different suggestion as to what this is actually about. And it relates to something Sandra said earlier. He suggests we have here is a kind of irony and that he suggests that actually the story here is addressing two different audiences. The knowledgeable audience who reads this connects it immediately both to the David and Bacheva story and to the Mifibosheth story and reads this as a kind of ironic critique of David. Whereas the reader, the uninitiated reader just sees it as Oh, it's a story which is in praise of David. But the initiates, the, the one who has some knowledge, understands that, what's, that what is in, in, encoded in the text here is a very powerful critique. That's the claim that Diamond makes. I don't care for that claim. Uh, in general, something about that claim, the idea that the Bavli is addressing two different audiences, the, the plain reader and then the, the expert or the one who knows better. There are texts that work that way. The Ramam's guide, guide for the perplexed, he says it explicitly. I write my book for the one person in a thousand who understands what I'm really saying. For the others, I'm giving you the standard lines, but I conceal the truth from the other who can't understand me. But I don't think that's what's operative over here. No. I have a different point of view about what's going on over here. Um, I, I, in general, don't like that approach that there are these, the scholars, maybe it's the academics, they know better. And the average guy, you know, that's not, that's not for me. I think it's saying something different. I think there's one audience over here. And the Bavli assumes in my view that anybody who reads the story who's read the book of Shmuel, understands very well that the story speaks to the book of Shmuel. And the book of Shmuel, at least in that story, actually, David is, uh, David is, in, David is inserting himself in a, in between husband and wife, and that David is guilty of a terrible crime, that what leads to the crime is a kind of malfeasance, what often leads to a crime, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. One thing leads to the next, he's not in the battle. So for whatever reason, he goes to sleep. He's the commander in chief who sleeps on the job. He sleeps in the day, he's up at night. He goes to the roof and roofs are dangerous places. And only from the roof can he see this woman. And as far as Mephibosheth is concerned, that's the other great crime of the book. It's the mistreatment of this lame person. And even more than that, it's breaking a promise he made to Jonathan, the man who made him king. It's the ultimate ingratitude and it's breaking a promise and breaking a vow. 
And anybody who reads this story, not just the academic elite, everybody understands that when you read the story, you are remembering the book of Shmuel. So what is the point? And in my view, I think a better approach is the following. And there's more to be said about this and I'll say it in the future, but the point is this, that the, the, there are many Davids. There's the David of the book of Samuel, but then there's the David of the book of Chronicles. In the David of the book of Chronicles, there's no Bathsheba and there's no Uriah and there's no Avshalom and there's no Adonia and there's no Navo and there's no stories of Michal and Meirav and all that business. There's none of that. It's all cleaned up. It's a different picture of David. And there's the David of the book of Kings where David, outside of mentioning Uriah one time, he's the model king. The saintly kings are like David or almost as good as David or not, bad ones are not like David. So the point is that within the, the biblical canon itself, there are many Davids. And in my view, one way to read the Agatha in the beginning of Tractate Brachot is to say the following. It says, my beloved reader, there is the David of Samuel. And this story reminds everybody of the David of Samuel. But we are taking a different approach to David. The David of the Bavli, or part of the Bavli, or pieces of the Bavli, we, we, we know that story and you know the story. We want to present you with a different picture of David. That's what this story says to me. We know that, don't forget the other story. We remember the story very well. We are presenting you with a different picture of David. And let me just say the following thing about a different picture of David. And come back to the David and Bathsheba story and I'll end with that and take comments and questions. At the end of the David Bathsheba story, Uriah is dead. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, child is born. And David thinks his problems have been solved. Now the child is his child and there's no Uriah and there's no other line and no one knows, he thinks, but of course God knows everything. And the prophet goes to David, Nathan the prophet. And Nathan says, King, because the king's a judge, I have the following case, what do you think? There's a rich man and a poor man. Rich guy's got everything, a million flocks. Poor guy has one animal that he cares for and raises and treats like a member of the family. And a stranger comes to town and the rich one doesn't want to give one of his animals to prepare for the stranger. So he takes the one animal, the little lamb of the poor man, and he kills it and prepares it for the stranger. What do you think is the rule? And David got exceedingly angry. And David said, that man should die. I swear he should die. He has no compassion. And he should pay four times because he did this wicked deed and he has no, no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And what is the point of that story? Because elsewhere in the book, the prophet doesn't come with parables. Samuel tells off Saul, Samuel tells off Eli. But in the case of David, it's different. Because the point of the book is actually that David has a deep moral sense, deep. He doesn't just say what the rule is, he gets exceedingly angry I swear that blankety blank should die. Who does this kind of thing? It's you. And that's the point of the story. The tragedy is 
David is perfectly capable of doing the right thing. Not just that, he's capable of moral outrage. And that picture of David appears and reappears throughout the book of Samuel. We'll see this next time or the next two times. And the tragedy is that because he's king and because the nature of kingship and the seeking power and the seeking to retain power, and that's what causes people to do all kinds of terrible things. And not just to do terrible things, but not to see. You don't see the truth because the power corrupts the ability to see. So the idea of presenting a different David is not foreign even to the book of Samuel. It's not foreign to the Bible, but it's not even foreign to the book of Samuel. The David who says, I swear that person should die. And David got exceedingly angry this is not right, this is not justice, this is not compassion, you are the man. And that's at the center of the book, actually. The book's about kingship, the book's not against kingship. The book's about what power can do to people who wield power or who seek power. What it does in terms of behavior, what it does in terms of vision, that's what the book's about. So this Agarita in the beginning of Brachot, in my view, is saying to everybody, not just to some little group. You know, we're going to present a different picture of David. Often in this book, there'll be a different picture of David. And you know what? That picture of David is also true. Because the same man who is capable of killing his enemy, he didn't want to kill him, but he does, of causing the death. The same man is the same guy who's up all night composing the songs that we sing. It's the songs that we sing. Talks about prayer, it's David. The same guy. And that's how we're gonna approach David in the Talmud Bavli. We're not gonna cover up any crimes, quite the opposite. And we know you're all aware of the story of David and Bathsheba, but there's another way to read David. It's kind of the ideal David. There's the David who does in the words of the book of Samuel, and David did righteousness and justice for all his people. That's also with David in the same book of Samuel, and that's also with David in the Talmud Bible. I have to stop at this point. Are there any comments or questions? We meet two more weeks. So next week, I think we'll take care of Megillah, the Gemara and Megillah, and then we'll save Pesachim for the end, which is what very positive about David. Comments or questions? If someone wants to uh, ask questions, you can send me an email and I'll happy to respond. Desoberitrisha.org. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Briefly. it's fascinating. Bye-bye. Okay, see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, thank you.